0: hello emily did you get your bloody beer
1: i did get a bloody beer um i also remembered a story i wanted to tell you on the podcast because i also got uh an old-timey disease recently
0: <laughs> oh yeah was
1: it <laughs> did first of did all, you get consumption say... <laughs> <laughs> uh not yet uh fingers <laughs> crossed uh No, I was just gonna say, let me preface this by saying that it's not life-threatening in any way, nor does it involve poop. But um, I live in Colorado, it's been very cold, and I live in an old house that's heated by radiators, uh, which is to say, not very well. Like, I put a blanket up and only heat half my house, and it's still fucking expensive. So my kitchen is, like, unheated when it's, like two degrees outside. Okay, that's, and so, that's
0: real, because the house I lived in for, like, uh, the first two years of college it was, like, a really, really old-fashioned southern home, and it was the same way. And even if we put blankets up and just heated the living room area, it still yeah. almost cost at least, like, $200 a month.
1: Yeah, that's what my life is right now, and it's still not even that warm. Like, I still have to wear sweaters all the time. But... Like, so I went into the kitchen to, like, do dishes or cook or whatever, and it's tile, and I have a rug, but it's still cold as fuck. It's basically being outside, and so my feet got really cold, and I, being like, I'm always cold, my feet are always cold, uh, they're not warming up, I'm gonna take a hot shower. Um, but, so what happened is my feet went from being very cold to being very warm, because I take the hottest showers possible. And... After that, I realized that my toes were like swollen and puffy, and like the skin itched and they were sore. And I was like, What is happening? Am oh, I dying? No. And I looked it up and I got something called chillblains <laughs> or sometimes called chillburn. And it's basically like some people get it. Uh, it used to be more common back in the day when, you know, we didn't have good heating and electricity, I guess. But basically what happens is your hands or your feet, when they're cold, the blood vessels constrict and get small. And if you heat them up again too fast, that can tear and, like, essentially cause, like, a little bruise or an internal bleeding. And that's what happened. Um, so I had, like, old-timey chill toes for a couple weeks. Um, so, yeah. Just <laughs> never a dull moment over here in... Idiot, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean to laugh but also like of
0: course that happened
1: <laughs> yeah of course it did of course it did like it is worth laughing at um also someone stole my bike off my porch recently which is not as funny but okay that's some straight up bullshit yeah it is bullshit I was mad uh I was out of town And so I was just like, what is this, some fucking asshole who walks by my house every day? Because you can't even see that there's a bike. And my porch faces the alley, so it's not like it's people walking by every day. And I was just mad. And, like, my pet sitters were coming and going, so it's not like my house was abandoned. And that bike is fucking worthless, but I loved it. So I'm just like, ugh, you fucking dillhole. Anyway. Anyway.
0: Alright, well, we'll have to start up a donation to get you a new bicycle.
1: I just realized. And maybe some wool socks. I have been thinking about my bike being stolen for a week, and I have been so sad about it, but I just fucking realized that the helmet was in the basket, which means they also stole my fucking helmet! <laughs> and it took forever
0: for you to get that goddamn helmet.
1: I know, and I only bought it because I made a pact with the listeners, and now they're both gone. Ugh, what is the point of ever trying? I'm never going to wear a helmet again.
0: (laughs) No, you're not. You're getting a helmet.
1: (laughs) You're like, this is not the lesson to take from this situation. (laughs) Fucking dicks. Anyway. I learned my lesson. Chillblains are really terrible. I'm going to take care of my feet and warm them up gradually. Uh, But... Anyway. So did that's they, what's happening over here.
0: <laughs> did they turn purple or anything?
1: Um well kind of they get like very like they look kind of like ham. Like my toes got really like swollen and pink and then they would look a little bruised as they deflated. But the skin, this is why I also knew it was chilblains. The skin gets really irritated, like itchy like so the toes themselves are painful like a bruise but then the skin is like it's it hurts and it's also itchy at the same time it's very annoying Um, like one day I was like if I cannot claw the flesh off of my toes I don't know what I'm gonna do and so I just like put my foot over the toilet bowl and just like poured calamine lotion on my toes (laughs) and it felt so good that I I audibly just went like oh my god (laughs) Uh so this is why I live with animals and not other human beings. <laughs> I'm getting you nice socks. I just need like I need to ask myself more often like is this something that an adult human would do, or is this something that like a teenage raccoon would do? and if the answer is this is something a teenage raccoon would do, I need to have a talk with myself where I go, I understand why this is appealing. But don't do it. Don't do it, Emily. Be an adult human. Remember that time that you got an old-timey disease? Or condition, (laughs) rather? Yeah, remember that time when your toes were really gross? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Welcome to All Things Terror. This is a research podcast where we tell you tales from... Science, history, and true crime that will spoopy you right up. I'm Emily, with the gross toes.
0: And I'm Jennifer, who wears warm socks on her feet when it's cold.
1: Yeah, Jennifer is the adult human, Emily is the teenage raccoon of this podcast. (laughs) As all podcasts are basically two females, one an adult human and one a teenage raccoon. Now you know which is which in this role. <laughs> Wait, is that true? Is that true? Yeah, yeah of course. Oh, I, did, I didn't know. The more you know. Yeah. I mean, teenage raccoons are actually uh, far more prevalent in media than most people would realize.
0: I mean, that does explain celebrities, so.
1: <laughs> so this week, I have a tale for you it's a bummer it's interesting but it's a bummer um i've heard of this in bits and pieces and recently i listened to this episode of dark histories which is a podcast um and it's from season three episode 20 and my topic is like a little mention in this um but i will say that episode is the sadamichi Hirasawa and the tegan incident and it's only tangentially connected to my story, but it is a wild ride. Um, so I would highly recommend that episode to everybody. What I'm going to talk about today is uh, Japan's. I don't know why I said it. Like I have never said that word in my life. <laughs> Let's try again. Japan's. There we go. Uh, Unit seven three one. Okay. Do you know? Do you know about this? No. Nope. Oh, damn, girl. All right, so uh, before we get into it, I just want to say that a lot of my documents, I, I looked up a lot of stuff, but the bulk of it comes from two books. One is Unit 731 Testimony by Hal Gold, and the other one is Factories of Death by Sheldon H. Harris. Um, and both of those sources kind of tell this story through the prism of one man, Shiro, who's sort of the architect of this whole thing. And that's kind of... How I'm also going to tell this story. Um, but before we get into it, I want to put some things in context of like where we are. So we're in Japan, or Japan, if you've forgotten how to speak, <laughs> around the era of World War II. So all kinds of great things are happening globally. Um, prior to World War II, Japan has recently had a war with Russia, and they also really fucking hate China. So, you know, just some knowledge. Um, in 1925, the first Geneva Convention was signed, um, and this came at the heels of World War I. Japan was one of the countries that signed that, and Japan, or Japan, the Geneva Convention, um, which we all know is like you can't torture people and stuff, uh, also banned biological and chemical warfare. So, uh, the news of this Geneva Convention and the signing is where this guy Ishii comes in. Because it's hard to, for us to kind of wrap our minds around it, but World War One like, traumatized the shit out of the world. Like, they just could not wrap their mind around this. And so, especially, like, gas warfare yeah. and the its role in world war one was almost more of like propaganda than like actually using the gas, but it just like horrified people so bad. Um, and so the Geneva Con- convention came about out of that. And Ishii instead comes in and goes like, well, if they made it illegal, it must work really well. Uh, I'm into this, um, which is not the reaction most people had. And is also the argument that, Like fucking gross 30 year old dudes who try to have sex with 15 year old girls have like well if it's illegal it must be great (laughs) right um yeah so Ishii is basically that slimy dude um who is this guy well he's been to the army he goes to medical school he ends up maintaining professional ties in both worlds um eventually he ends up teaching back at his alma mater and he marries the school president's daughter so he is like moving on up he's climbing ladders And according to sources that I read, that's exactly what he was all about. Um, That and being, like, a fucking weirdo. Uh, He's married, but he's, like, an obsessively big fan of geisha houses, which are essentially sex workers in this area and context. Um, He was well-known for liking young girls, like, no older than 15. So I made that metaphor joke earlier, but reality, he is a creepy, gross dude. Um... Hal Gold, who wrote one of those books, said, quote, As a student, Ishii seemed to have had personality problems. More succinctly... (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, no, this is a great burn. Just wait. Quote, more succinctly, he created problems for others. He was pushy, inconsiderate, and selfish. In harmony with these personality traits, he was also a ladder climber. End quote. So this guy's just, like, roasting him. He's like, this guy sucked. You did not want to be in school with him
0: oh god what what a what an understatement
1: yeah he seems like
0: we had personality problems
1: yeah like he seems like one of those guys like when we think about villains of history there's always like oh he was like totally wonderful and pleasant to be around and then later i found out he was a serial killer or there are people who are like he was really petty and shitty but he never did anything bad Ishii seemed to have both of those bad traits. Like, he was really, like, petty and shitty to be around all the time, and he did big, horrible stuff. Um, Harris has this other story that, like, in the student days, like, they would work—when they're in medical school, they would, like, work in the labs all day and then, like, wash their dishes and leave them in the rack to dry so that you could come in the next day with clean dishes, And what Ishii would do is he would work at night. So he would come in and everyone's clean dishes would be laying there in the lab. So he would just make them all dirty and use them overnight and not clean them up. Dick. Yeah. He's a dick. (laughs) Um, His first big paper that he published is about um, inducing malaria. So malaria causes crazy high fevers um, and he used he did that to treat gonorrhea, which is something that we saw with syphilis. Clint actually, when you did the syphilis episode in season one, I think uh I think it was season one. you did that maybe season two um it was so Clint long was the ago. one I know Clint was the one who was like there they used to this, like experiment with malaria because it would give you a high fever and it would like kill the syphilis. Um, and so he was doing that too with gonorrhea, but he was giving people malaria on purpose, which is not really ethical. Um, if, if that's a controversial statement, just know, here's something you've learned from us. You can't give people diseases on purpose to study what happens when they get the disease. It's rude. Okay. It's, don't be rude. <laughs> don't be rude. Don't be rude. Wash. Wash the dishes that you use in class and don't give people diseases on purpose, alright? It's it's just that easy. Yep. But Ishii gets really into this idea of biological warfare. He loves it. He essentially bullies the university until they start what is called, quote, the Department of Immunio- Immunology, and he's the chair. He has tons of military backing because if you can weaponize diseases, that would be great. The military would love it, right? Um... Later in this role, he invents a water purification system, um, which is a really big deal. It makes him kind of a famous scientist. Um, in all wars, except maybe our now forever war that we're in, disease has killed more combatants than actual combat. So there was like a need for water purification, um, but it also came off of this racist paranoia that the Chinese would purposely give Japanese people who at this point were occupying parts of China, cholera. So it's sort of like this real need coupled with racism. And he's like, I love that spot. Um, and I bring this up early because this is sort of where he bursts onto the scene and becomes like a really big deal. Um, but the, and I'm going to read this long name, Anti-Epidemic Water Supply and Purification Bureau, a.k.a. a Water Purification Bureau, um, would eventually come to be synonymous with, like, human experimentation. Cool, so, cool,
0: cool, 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 Yeah,
1: he has this, like, legit veneer, but everyone is well aware that it's a veneer. Um, also, there's another really weird story about this that's probably one of the very few funny parts. Um... But Ishii, this fucking weirdo at one point, is, like, demonstrating his water purification system and, like, to show that it works to, like, government officials, including the Emperor Hirohito, he, like, whips out his dick and pees directly into the filter and then offers the Emperor, like, the water, the pee, filtered pee that came out, and the Emperor is like, pass. Uh, so Ishi quote, downed with evident delight, the urine turned water. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so this guy is weird. <laughs> also, just imagine being in that meeting where you're like, listen, I have this product that works, uh, and it would be wonderful for soldiers. Let me show you. And then that someone just pees directly into it and is like, drink this pee. No, I'm not gonna imagine that. No, thank that. you. Nope. Mm-mm. Um... So this brings us up to 1932. Uh, Drinking the pee water, not getting cholera, all this great stuff. Um, In 1932, Japan invades China. Um, I tried to look this up and I was like, no, too complicated. Uh, But it seems very much like the Anschluss um, in Germany where there's sort of like this pretext for invading and they don't consider it invading. They're kind of like, we're doing this thing. Anyway, if you're interested in it, you can look it up. Uh, But our guy Ishii really like knows an opportunity when he sees one and he moves into the city of Harbin, China with his army officers um, to do research and have like this military backing and become essentially do whatever he wants. Um, But he realizes that Harbin is too big of a city um, to get up to the antics. So him and his cohorts like find this village outside of it, like south, south of this city and they, quote, forcibly evacuated all the inhabitants and burned most of the buildings. <laughs> so he's a chill dude. Um, they call this the Togo Unit. They get peasants to build structures for them. And this ends up being the Zongma prison camp. And basically, it is honestly a prison, except that it was built for um, to be able to hold like a thousand people and there's usually only 500 to 600 people there. There's also rumors that they're killed on purpose. Uh, but what Ishii does with his prisoners, um, they're fed slightly better than regular Chinese peasants. They're given like good rations. Um, however, they're also shackled all the time. They have their blood drawn every single day until they die. Because I don't know if you know this, but like you have to keep your blood in your body right um yeah it's it does stuff so if you just keep taking it out day after day you're not going to do good um there's not a ton of records about this because later um it's it's very secret but the secrecy of it eventually gets compromised and so they destroy everything um but what we do know is that they the things that have come out of it one they tested whether cholera or plague, like literal bubonic plague situation, would be a better biological weapon. If you're wondering, the answer is plague. Uh, Felix, don't growl at the cat. Rude. He he just does this sometimes. Felix, stop it. Rue, you can come in here if you want. Felix, don't be an ishie. He is... (laughs) He just gets, like, weirdly, like, jealous sometimes, and I'm like, the cats don't care about your bones like felix is not even chewing his bone he's just laying near it and the cat is like i want to come into the room and sit on the warm bed and felix is like would you take my bone yeah the cat doesn't want your bone bro no the cat has never wanted anything less in her life um anyway so plague is a better biological weapon um they also did um, freezing experiments, like what happens when a human freezes. Probably worse things than chillblains. Uh, one of these quotes that I got uh, from Harris's book said, quote, If Ishii or one of his co-workers wished wish to do research on the human brain, then they would order the guards to find them a useful sample. A prisoner would be taken from his cell. Guards would hold him while another guard would smash the victim's head with an axe his brain would be extracted and rushed immediately to the laboratory. Oh, reasonable. Yeah, so that's gross and not what the Geneva Convention would recommend, I imagine. Uh, truthfully, I did not read the Geneva Convention, so I'm just assuming that smashing people in the head with an axe because you want to study the brain would not be okay with them. Um, so like I said, this they, they try to keep this really secret, um, but it it gets compromised. Um, so they destroy everything, destroy the buildings, and they move even further south um, to an area that's known as Pingfan. Fan. It's, it's sort of several villages. Um, and the first thing they do in Pingfan Fan is they displace a bunch of Chinese people. They're just like rolling into town and they're like, get the fuck out, we don't care if your ancestors are here. Here's $10 even though your land is worth 50 and we're not even paying you for these buildings. Fucking kick rocks. Um, And then they get the Chinese people to build their compound. And they basically torture all of these Chinese locals as they're doing it. They beat them. They have dogs attack them. Uh, One time there's this story of um, it was there's like this crazy wind and they had this um, like Chinese man climb up on the roof. They're like, you need to replace those tiles. And because it was crazy windy, he was blown off the roof. Had died presumably um and the guards laughed so it's a very like slave labor racist not great place to work right um another very telling section from harris that i will read um quote it was such a huge project that even arrogant japanese administrators were forced to invent a cover story for ping fang fan he says fang i couldn't find any reason why it's spelled differently i assume translation issues um anyway they were usually so contemptuous of or different to chinese public opinion that the normal procedure was to ignore it but ping fang was simply too large to ignore consequently as an artifice the local population was informed that the chinese were constructing a lumber mill within the compound and with the exquisite sarcastic humor in air quotes for which Ishii and his colleagues were famous, they referred among themselves to their human subjects as Maruta or logs. End quote. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they are very already dehumanizing like the Chinese people that they're around. Um, and yeah, this is this is not great. So the Chinese, who are essentially slaves end up constructing 76 buildings for Ishii and the Japanese. Um, In 1936, so it's this huge compound. Um, And I'll just read a quote again because it's... There's so many things where I pulled quotes from these books because I was just like, I can't figure out how to process what's happening. But this compound has, quote an immense administrative headquarters building to laboratories, dormitories for civilian workers, barracks and arms magazine, barns for test animals, stables, an autopsy slash dissecting building, a laboratory for frostbite experiments capable of operating year-round, a huge farm that produced fruits and vegetables for the staff and was equipped with several greenhouses that were used for plant biological warfare experiments, a special prison that housed human test subjects, a power plant, three furnaces to dispose of discarded human and animal carcasses and recreational facilities, including a swimming pool. Um, <clears throat> so a murder compound. It is a murder compound and a small city for the employees. Um, they had a special railroad that was only for them that would go directly into the human prison. Um, It was a no-fly zone. Uh, Any planes going overhead would be shot without warning. Japanese Army planes constantly flew around to protect it. It was off-limits to all civilians. There were no two-story buildings allowed within surrounding areas. The region was guarded by three branches of police and armed forces and military police inside. There was also a moat and a wall that is five meters high, which is about 16 feet, with barbed wire, high-voltage wire on the top, and guard towers at Four Corners. So, if there's any um, argument that this was not a weird secret operation, that would be wrong. Um, Ishii was super paranoid. Um, He really wanted this to remain under his control and secret. Um, He was also, like, very weird in that he wanted his Japanese workers I mean, super, he's super racist, but he wanted his Japanese workers to be really happy. Um, so for those people, there was also, and here's another quote, 22 state-of-the-art dormitory buildings, a 1,000-seat auditorium complete with a library and bar, the swimming pool, gardens, small bars and restaurants, bathrooms. My note was like, yeah, duh, of course there's bathrooms. Warehouses to store fish and vegetables, athletic fields, and a brothel to serve Japanese personnel, plus a large Shinto tuple and a combined primary and secondary school. So, if you were someone who worked there, this was like It's Disneyland Yeah, it's like, oh a paradise. Uh, Also, that brothel must have been, and that's not my word, the word that was used in the book like, the grimmest fucking place on earth. Um, Right So, it is like and I saw this mention that it rivaled the actual size of Auschwitz. So, like the real estate of Auschwitz, plus a, a small community that includes children. <laughs> so this is a... There's something very sinister about the idea that they're like, not only are we going to do these things, but we're going to live next to it because it doesn't upset us at all. Yeah, that's pretty fucked up. Yeah. Um, buildings 7 and 8 are where things go the very fucked up realm. Um, this is where human experiments took place. Um, building seven was for men and eight was for women. Um, both of these buildings had underground tunnels that you could bring prisoners into. So that's good and not at all suspicious or creepy or anything at all. Um, the people were mostly Chinese. There are, there were also people who were called, quote, white Russians, which I understand to be an old-timey term for, like, Russian Jews. Um, An estimated 30% of the prisoners were... Yeah, prisoners were uh, Soviet prisoners of war. Um, There were communists, people who were mentally impaired, basically any sort of non-Japanese person who was accused, uh, quote, of an assortment of crimes, including spying, end quote. Um, There's also stories that... if they needed subjects and they didn't have them, Ishii would send his police into the local city of Harbin and just, like, grab random people. uh, Which is very dystopian. Like, these secret police just show up, grab you, and there's no trial, and you're gone. So, what kinds of experiments, you might be wondering. uh, Or you might not be wondering, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Um, The main work, And the most documented work, and when I say most documented, like, I was looking at primary sources, I was looking at peer-reviewed sources, in addition to these two big history books. Um, And the stuff that gets mentioned the most is biological warfare. Um, The idea was, one, to figure out what kinds of biological warfare we could use, and two, um, how to spread them. One of the big ones that they studied, three, were um, anthrax, plague, and glanders. I do not know what glanders is, but anthrax is um, a disease that uh, livestock get, and then because we grew up in a 9-11 world, we know that it can be turned into a powder that's very, very deadly for humans, especially if it's inhaled. Plague is plague. Um, They experimented with different ways to deploy them, like bombs, bacterial clouds, quote, volunteers use as saboteurs, so like getting someone sick and sending that person into a populated area. Um, The author Hal Gold said that there were four main areas of study. Um, Frostbite was one, cholera, quote, epidemic hemorrhagic fever, which is stuff that will kill you dead, and plague. Uh, So we might be wondering, how did he study these things well with prisoners um or those uh what they called marutas or logs um people were injected with diseases they were forced to eat food with germs in it and then there's like this part where everything just like goes off the fucking rails and it stops being about like biological warfare and it's just like everyone working there was just like i wanted to see what would happen um The word vivisection comes up a lot. Uh, Harris, here's a quote from Harris, quote, some of the tests involved hanging, quote, material humans upside down in order to determine the time necessary to choke to death, unquote. Um, There were a lot of experiments about like how long will it take people to die if we dehydrate them, if we remove parts of their organs like livers um they would amputate limbs to let people bleed out bury them alive quote they would put quote people into high pressure chambers placed into centrifuges and spun to death deprived of food and water or exposed to lethal doses of x-rays to determine the relationship between temperature burns and length of survivors prisoners were torched with flamethrowers or exposed to phosphorus or chloride gas end quote uh which is from a website uh, medical bag uh, all of this is really just to like there's no real scientific reason for any of this except to be like how will these people die how long will it take well, um, really just
0: to torture people
1: it, yeah really just to torture people um, and one of the things that um, the Harris book made a really kind of a point of making out is that like um a lot of these people like it wasn't in Nazi Germany where you got into these positions because you were a party official and you like bought the ideology and you like hated Jews and really like thought they were subhuman. Um, a lot of these people were scientists like they recruited scientists and. Um, And I'm sure that there was some sense of ideology that would allow you to think of these people as not people. Um, But, like, this is not sociopaths being recruited who want to do this from the get-go. They're normal um, people. Yeah, they're normal people, which is much more frightening. Yeah. I was going to end with this quote, but I'll just read it now because it's exactly on there. Um, it's from Harris, Harris's book. Um, it says, Others, both civilian and military personnel, knowing what they would be expected to do once they were established in Ping Feng or in any of the other laboratories under Ishii's jurisdiction. So he had other compounds as well. Um, willingly enlisted in his cause because they could pursue research unhindered by either financial or ethical considerations. For them, ethics were not an issue. They knew right from wrong. In their minds, however, advanced research was not to be inhibited by technical restraints. They rationalized that the end really did justify the means. Of course they did. Yeah, so uh, I do want to point that out because that's not this is not like a Nazi situation. I mean, it is, but it also is not. Um, the other things that they did, they like I said, it just goes off the rails and it's just like, we're just doing things to see what would happen. Like, they injected people with seawater instead of saline solution, which would be a very painful way to die. Um, they exploded strapping near people. They per- performed amputations and lots of like vivisections and surgeries without anesthesia. Um, sometimes researchers would reattach body parts. This is a quote in novel ways. For example, a stomach would be surgically removed and then the esophagus would be attached directly to the intestines. End quote. This is again from Medical Bag um this is another from the same website i will read you this quote um they would study frostbite or this is from uh Hal gold's book quote people were taken into prison or from prison into below freezing temperatures they were tied up with their arms bared and soaked with water water was poured over the arms regularly sometimes the ice that formed on them would be chipped away and water poured over again the researcher would strike the limbs regularly with a club Then an arm made a sound like a wooden board's being hit. This indicated that the limb was frozen through, and from there, different methods of treatment were tested. Legs and feet were exposed to similar treatments. Some experiments resulted in the flesh and muscle falling from the bones. Others left the the bones so brittle that they were shattered by the blows from the clubs. Either way, the eventual result was the same, gangrene and the rotting away of extremities, they reported that victims had no hands, no feet, end quote. Yeah, what else would they
0: expect to happen?
1: Yeah, don't worry. It gets worse. Um, like the Tuskegee experiments in America, um, they would also monitor the rate of syphilis without intervention, even though there were interventions available. Um, they would bring in prisoners, one male and one female, and basically force them to essentially rape each other at gunpoint or be shot, um, so that they could track the transmission of venereal diseases. Um, they would also, instead of just observing these diseases, uh, again, this is from a Hal Gold book, quote, researchers were able to employ live dissection to investigate how different internal organs are affected at different stages of the disease. Um, End quote. There's a lot of testimony that um, and lots of sources said that they just performed unnecessary operations on living people just for the reason like to see what would happen. They called them dissections, which is not what we call when we operate on people for good reasons. Um, They injected air into people to see what would happen if you inject air into people. Uh, horse urine was injected into human kidneys they overdosed people on purpose with heroin um korean bindweed castor oil seeds and food castor oil seeds are like insanely wildly poisonous they injected people with cholera coated buckshot in germs and exploded it to penetrate people and see if those germs would get into them um Hal Gold's book has a lot of testimony at the back from people around this situation, like villagers. And one of those stories includes a person, like a kid who had survived this plague outbreak in his village. He was the only one out of his entire family to survive. Um, And he testified to seeing planes dropping plague clouds, quote, drop something that looked like smoke. Um, And again, like, this is in an area where no one is allowed to fly except for Ishii's planes. Uh, yeah. I, if anything, in reading this, um, what went on in the Ping Fang uh, facilities is quite possibly the least known part of this. Um, and I'll talk a little bit later about that Um there's not as much documentation of this as you might imagine. Um, some of the things, and there are reasons why I'm kind of building this up, but one, um, Ishii published a paper that covered one month of his work um, and said that this, within one month, he experimented on until they died 801 people. Yeah. Yeah. They have a note that said that these people, which again they call logs, um, were generally only around for a few weeks before they died or were murdered because they weren't good test subjects anymore. Um, The scientists routinely published their work and would say that they were doing it on monkeys or Manchurian monkeys um harris said that it was a really open secret in japanese medical society that anytime an experiment mentioned monkeys that meant humans because if they really were experiments on monkeys they would have their actual type of monkey like long-tailed monkey taiwan monkey but if it just if it just said monkey that meant this was a person so this was like an open and open secret um the agreed-upon number of how many people were killed at this one facility is um, 3,000 people. Harris thinks it's closer to between 3,000 and 12,000. And that's a huge gap. Um, and the reason is that as they were fleeing, um, and they did flee, right? At one point, Japan loses the war. Um the Americans and the Russians are starting to encroach in and liberate these parts of China that they've been uh, occupying. And as they're fleeing, they destroy this. Um, They demolish the buildings. They burn all the bodies and body parts. They burn the records. They destroy them. Um, This one article that I found online um, also said that they released um, the like fleas, the plague fleas that they had been setting into the area which resulted in an additional 20 to 30,000 Chinese dying. Yep. Jesus. Um something that I did not realize when I was doing this, but I did um find out um and I'm kind of jumping ahead in my notes, but that's fine. Um so the Japanese did uh destroy, like, all these records. So as they're leaving, they destroy it, bomb the buildings, all of this stuff. And one of the things that we know about World War II and we think about the Nazis is that the Nazis kept all these perfect records. And when they liberated the concentration camps, they were just there, like, they just left, um, which is sort of what I thought of. And doing my research on this, I realized that that's not true. Um, The Nazis actually tried really hard to, like, destroy at the camps and the evidence of it as they were leaving, they just didn't do a good job. Um, For example, we think of Auschwitz and we're like, yeah, it's well-documented. Everybody knows what's happened at Auschwitz. But through this research, I found out that um, we only have about 10% of the records. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. I I didn't didn't either. I didn't know that. Um, Yeah. So we, we estimate that we only have about 10% of the documents from Auschwitz-Birkenau Um, And that represents 650,000 individuals and is about 70 documents. Um, But that's all we have. Uh, Japan, and when they're destroying this unit, which is eventually called Unit 731, um, they were much more thorough. So all of the, um, like most of the, historical record of this 731 is not coming from recovered documents is coming from testimony which one is voluntary right like people who were there or people who work there coming forward and being like i have to tell you what happened and two um i guess testimony is not considered um enough to bring people up on war crimes so uh we're gonna talk about war crimes in a little bit um but one of the reason why I kind of outlined the scale of this so much and Harris makes a really compelling argument in his book that this was a crazy expensive operation and Ishii operated and acted like he basically had a blank check. Um, he was also known to have military ties and to be very like corrupt and self-serving. And Harris points all of this out because um, essentially there's no way that this was like a rogue unit. Um, He thinks that there's quite a bunch of evidence that this was sanctioned from on high. Um, He points to, like, people that seem kind of equivalent to chief of staff in the U.S. Um, They had, like, generals and colonels as their titles who were aware of it. Um, He also says someone who mentioned something happening at Unit 731 by, quote, command of the emperor. So this seems very much like it was sanctioned by the government. Like, this was not just Ishii doing whatever um harris also points out that um ishii was uh promoted pretty regularly like every 30 year or every three years in the 30s um and in 1938 two years after this facility was built he was appointed colonel and then he later became the army surgeon general um which once again suggests that the higher-ups had absolutely every idea that was hap that this was going on
0: yeah yeah
1: uh, I also found a New York Times article uh, that I think was from 1999, and um, uh, Bob Doheny is quoted in it. He's this guy who was a lawyer um, on the United States prosecution team in Tokyo. So post-war, people are in there investigating. You lost. We won. We're going to see if we can get you in trouble. And he was like, I had no idea that germ warfare or biological warfare was happening, Um and we'll come back to this later. He was like, I was blown away. But he said that um, the emperor and other people were not brought up on war crimes. And he says that this was a big mistake. And he, his quote is, quote, I don't think there's any question of the emperor's guilt. Um, which is to imply that the emperor absolutely knew that this was happening. So all of this comes to this idea that we have a lot of nazis that have come up on war crimes we have hunted down a lot of nazis this has been a big thing right the nuremberg trials are trying nazis for their crimes against humanity that's where the phrase crimes against humanity comes from um and so the question is like how does unit 731 factor into this um in that 1999 new york times article um there is a rabbi rabbi abraham cooper um who had like advocated for the Japanese to be like, you need to admit that you did this the way the Germans do. And his quote about this situation is like, quote, imagine hundreds of of Mangalese. Like we know about Dr. Mangale in Germany. Why don't we know about this? Um, And there are three reasons. And I will say um, no one has ever really been tried or held accountable for any of this. Um, Ishii, spoiler alert, uh, lived like in retirement and had a, government pension until his death um, other people who were involved in unit 731 uh, and this comes from a bioethics um, peer-reviewed article quote others became heads of important institutions including tokyo prefectural university the olympic committee and the green cross which is sort of like the red cross um, and at least seven of the directors of japan's post-war national institute of health and five of its vice directors had worked within the Ishii Network and has conducted human experiments. Many also went into the private sector and earned fortunes, end quote. Um, there's also been people um, publishing their work in Unit 731 in medical journals um, without, like, any compunction, like, no fear or shame in this. Um I'm trying to find, I had this headline that was like, um, presentation like blatantly references human experimentation. Um, Well into the 80s, I will say. I saw some citations throughout that well into the 80s this would happen. Um, And so then this question is like, well, why weren't they prosecuted? Why isn't this as big of a deal as Germany and the horrors of the Nazi camp? This is not something that's well-known. Um, and there are three big reasons for it, and they're all terrifying. Um, the first one we've kind of talked about, well, I'll just say I will go in order because it works well. Um, so one, denial. Um, the first one is that Japan has never officially admitted to Unit 731. That, that tracks. Yeah, they've never copped up to it. In fact, as recently as 2003, the Japanese government is like, oh, we don't have any records on this. Mm-hmm um and like i said this is all based almost all of this is based on willing testimony and germany has really rigorous education there's monuments everywhere they have a very like never forget never again attitude like school children are taught about this um i would imagine school children in germany learn more about the horrors of world war ii than americans do even though americans fucking love world war ii because we're like look we're the cowboys and we're the good we're the good guys we love it um japan has none of that culture um wikipedia said that japanese history textbooks usually will contain references to unit 731 but the way that they do it is to say and this comes from a japan supreme court ruling in 1998 they ruled that there was quote an academic consensus that unit 731 had existed so they're not admitting it, but they're saying, well, I guess researchers think that this is real. Uh-huh.
0: Sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Okay. Um,
1: as early, as recent as 2014, um, our own government, our own National Archives was like, Oh, hey, we have a bunch of like records about Japanese war crimes that we're gonna declassify right now. Which was Six years ago, barely. Um, The press release from this declassification said, quote, the Nazi war crimes and Japanese Imperial Government Records Interagency Working Group, IWG, which will come up again, um, announces the availability of 100,000 pages of recently declassified records as a result of a a search for files relevant to Japanese war crimes. Um, A lot of these are either newly declassified or they have been declassified, but they're just sort of like scattered all around and hard to kind of trace. And so the National Archives sort of, or this working group, um, like kind of put them in one place and published this book. Um, It's called Researching Japanese War Crimes Records, Introductory Essays. Um, And they have a database now and you can find this online. It's super easy to find. Um, But this is like a small percentage of what's available We've steadily been declassifying things since the 1950s, but it's still sort of haphazard. Um, in 1999, in 2002, this group also gave reports to Congress sort of about how they're still doing their research. They list their research publications, and so far there aren't any peer-reviewed publications coming out of this particular group about Unit 731. So this is not to say that people are not studying and publishing about Unit 731. They are. It's just that this group hasn't published anything peer-reviewed out of that yet. Uh, In 2015, the Japanese National Archives also did this weird thing um, where they declassified a list of people that they said worked at this Ping Fang location, um, which is unit 731 officially known as the epidemic prevention and water purification department um this they released this list under pressure and i know we have very sad stories and um there's always a shining hero and here is where we get seasons four hero it is um a professor katsuo nishiyama he's professor emeritus of shiga university of medical science and he headed this group that was like japan you need to declassify these records you need to admit to it um he requested this disclosure and this list came out 2015 it lists 300 3607 people who worked at unit 731 even though um yeah jesus that's a lot 52 surgeons 49 engineers 38 nurses and over a thousand combat medics however um this article also points out that they really think there were closer to 10,000 people employed there. Yeah. So a, small a small town, town um, and we only have a very small portion of it. Um, another list came out in 2018, but it's still deeply like very, very redacted, very incomplete. Um, it obscured some of the information of the unit's personnel. And again, they're not, admitting anything that went on there they're just saying well here's some of the people who worked at this place so there's a deep strain of denial that this ever existed the second reason again we've kind of talked on this but it's possibly true that the government doesn't have any documents because they were very good at destroying all of them Um, and i've sort of captured all of that but perhaps the biggest reason why this is not a big deal and this is the saddest and (laughs) The worst reason is U.S. involvement.
0: Oh, cool! Yeah, so Emily, um,
1: the U.S. as World War II wound down, um, actively made deals to get information about Unit Seven Hundred and Thirty-One and their experiments exclusively. So they made deals with people to say, "Give us this information." Don't share it with our allies, especially Russia. And in exchange, we will give you things that you want, like immunity from war crimes. Um, immediately as the U.S. and Russia were kind of destroying Japanese occupation, Ishii kind of laid low. Um, but as early as 1946, and I saw this in secondary and primary sources, um, and I will recount some information from actual primary sources, um, As early as 1946, the Americans were finding Ishii and interviewing him, not for prosecutorial purposes, but for informational ones. So they're like, we need to just chat and see what he learned. Um, The U.S. was super into the idea of biological warfare, and they wanted all of that information. Uh, This one guy, Lieutenant Colonel Murray Sanders, worked directly with uh, General MacArthur to negotiate with this guy named Dr. uh, Naruto to get amnesty for that information um macarthur's tact was like okay look you can't torture them to get this information but and neruda was like okay listen if you're not gonna like protect us from being tried by the russians we'll just give this information to the russians and murray sanders was like no no that's fine uh tell us what you want and give us this information about biological warfare uh in 1947 i and this is where i start getting into i looked up this book uh from the national archives the select documents on japanese war crimes and japanese biological warfare and there were a lot of memos from the 40s and 50s uh one of them quote scap legal act uh, legal section sought ishii for interrogation but not as a war criminal army g2 sought to locate ishii for questioning by war department personnel it was In 1946, Um, in 1947, uh, Japanese sources were told not to reveal to Russian interrogators any information about it, like nothing about the biological weapons used against the Chinese. Um, The mass production of fleas. Do not tell the Russians any of this. Or, quote, the same one in 1947 also uh, is talking about Quote, "Immunity from war crimes will be provided to Ishii and others in exchange for cooperation and full disclosure." End quote. Um, one of the points they there's another part where they're asking about um, immunity, and the, the memo says that it would be embarrassing if this happened um, for the U.S. So if we're going to do it, like keep it on the DL. Uh, there's also another a lot of discussion about well if there aren't like if all the records are destroyed we don't have enough evidence to try him because like just eyewitness accounts is not necessarily enough to hold someone to war crimes apparently even though they did it for nazis um and yet there's also this um felix don't be rude to the cat um there's also this memo again i think it was from 1947 yeah 1947 it's this primary source that i read it's a scan um it's from camp dietrich in maryland to the chief of the chemical corpse corps, corps, cor, not corpse um corpse corpse it's called <laughs> the name of the memo is quote brief summary of new information about japanese biological warfare activities and in this memo the the person at Camp Dietrich is saying like hey we have this guy who says that there's 8,000 slides um, that are from human cases of diseases like we had this human with this disease we got some cells and stuff off of them put on a slide and we've hidden these 8,000 slides in temples and we buried them in mountains around Japan I'm a pathologist who did this stuff including hiding it so I will get these slides I will give you like quote, photo micrographing, which I am guessing is just, like, some old-timey thing. Um, And I will write you this whole report in English, including, just like, descriptions of the slides, the lab protocols, the case histories, um, and I will have this to you by August. So, like, we're saying we don't have enough documentation to try these people for war crimes, but then we're also saying, like, oh, but we have all this evidence of, like horrible medical experience that we're going to benefit from so the u.s really just didn't want the soviets to know any of this information and made a bunch of deals so that we could get the information and benefit from it and that is a huge reason why no one has ever been brought to trial um, and why this is still a secretive and lesser known thing is that we did it on purpose
0: It's it, some fucked up shit. Yeah,
1: it's super <laughs> fucked up.
0: Um, I mean, you told me this one was going to be a bummer.
1: It's just but... like you—you you think you hit the bottom, and then you fall through the floor, and you hit another bottom. Yep. Um, I also have a lot of more recent information. Uh, but I, I really don't feel like we need to know. For example, that. The Lancet reported about family members suing the Japanese government and probably not winning. It took five years of testimony. Um, in 2005, there's still records being declassified that show the U.S. paying former members of Unit 731 like hundreds of thousands of dollars. Jesus. Yep. Um, in 1999, again, this New York Times article I've referenced a couple times, um, the US is trying to investigate this and the Japanese government was, quote, refusing to provide data on suspected war criminals who would be barred from entering the country, just as 60,000 Germans and other P- Europeans are now, end quote. Um, so it's very upsetting and it's still unfolding. Um, in some ways, this is kind of a lesser researched chapter uh, and it's super gross and fucked up. And that's the story of Japanese Unit 731. And the American, I feel as though this is no exaggeration to say, cover up.
0: Well, you know, instead of using our tax money to do things like civic mm-hmm. building.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yep. It's pretty bad. It's pretty gross. Um, I have no doubt that there are very upstanding institutions in the u.s now that are benefiting from that research without knowing it um and yeah human experimentation is shitty and bad and we should know about unit 731 and general ishii as much as we know about auschwitz and Mengele. although i will also say um Another thing that I found out about Germany in this research, I found this article about Auschwitz from 1992. And it was saying, like, generally we would say about 1 million people were considered, like, were murdered at Auschwitz. But for years, like, really up until the 90s, they thought the number was closer to 4 million. So in 1992 this article is talking about that like revision and like how we're doing more research. So like unit 731 is another great example of like, we're still declassifying documents as early as 2018. We still don't know anything about it. Like this feels like it happened. And I mean, it did, it happened like 80 years ago. It's still like essentially new historical information. Very, very important. important, yeah. So if you are an undecided major in college right now and you found this very fascinating, you could have a ripe research career in Japanese involvement in World War II and war crimes. And that is gross. <laughs>
0: <sighs> That's a good thing I started my morning yeah, beer. it
1: is... Uh, it is I don't know. Do we want to go back and make fun of Ishii for that time he drank his own pee in front of the Emperor? That that was a that was a happier time. That I mean, was a lighter moment in our lives in this story.
0: I mean I do, but at the same
1: time it's like clearly
0: he, he didn't give a shit. shit.
1: And not in the fun way like your friend who's like, I'll eat ten tacos for dinner. Not not in a fun way, What really mean, unpleasant way. Like, I'm gonna make these tacos out of human skin. Not people that want me to do it either. I don't give and a I shit. And I don't give
0: a shit. Someone get yeah. me a urine drink.
1: <sighs> well, go pet a cat. Go eat a taco. Don't think about this too much today. Uh, and don't call people logs, because that's dehumanizing. Yes, people are yeah. not lost. When you dehumanize people. people, it just makes it easier to do terrible things to them. So as soon as you hear someone being like, They're not a person, they're a insert something gross here, you shut that down.
0: What about you being a teenage I mean, record? That's
1: me telling myself that and I am saying it because it's awesome and I'm elevating myself. So who doesn't want to party with a Teenage <laughs> Raccoon? I'll eat fucking anything. Fair enough. Yeah, you Fair can enough. call me a Teenage Raccoon. But, uh... You know, be nice to everyone else.
0: Well. good Goodbye, goodbye forever. forever?
1: All Things Terror is written, recorded, and produced by two amateurs, Jennifer and Emily. Our sound editor is Clint. Intro music is by Cosimo Fogg. Come chat with us on Twitter at All Things Terror or Instagram at All Things Terror Podcast. Ask nicely and we'll probably send you a really cute sticker. If you like this podcast, tell a friend or write a review. It really helps us and helps more people find us. Goodbye forever. Thank you